Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. PlanetPod has been going now for nearly two years. In that time, we've recorded nearly 70 episodes and talked with over 150 inspirational guests. We've covered a wide range of sustainability subjects like food and farming, sustainable living, smart cities, clean energy and green finance, rewilding, climate justice and activism, and most recently, what getting to net zero means through our ongoing series with the Grantham Institute. We've talked with some amazing changemakers like Isabella Tree, Penn Haddo and Sasha Dench to find out what's inspired them to want to change the way we all think and act in order to ensure a sustainable future for all. What follows are just a few short calls to action taken from a sample of Planet Pod episodes. The Great Food Debate, Plastic, The End of the Affair, Healthy Workspaces, Future of Energy, Air Quality, Rewilding Episodes from Evan O'Common and the Nepestate, and the Arctic Explorer Penn Haddo. You can continue to download and listen to these episodes and we hope you will want to hear more as we chart our way through to a sustainable future with more guests in 2020. Thanks for listening to Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. We're drawing to a close, but I do want to ask you for a call to action. So, Julia, have you got one, something you'd like listeners to do as a result of this debate? Because we could have another whole pod on this. I mean, we've just started up going to have you all back again to have another conversation because <laughs> it's fascinating um, I think I mean it, I think mine would be if if you if you go to a coffee shop or if you're in your office where you work ask where the coffee waste goes just ask put put pressure on put pressure on people put pressure on companies to do the right thing with the with the coffee waste so, yeah, yeah. good one thank you Helen uh, well I rediscovered a cookbook which uh, I I first had in 1986 <laughs> when you were and, very and, very young <laughs> and it was brilliant for dealing with a surplus of food whether that's something you've overbought yourself or you've got a glut of it in your in your garden like I get lots of damsons and lots of fruit all at the same time and it, it shows you how to by individual ingredient uh, find a, a recipe to, to use lots of it and it also tells you how to, to freeze it and, and preserve it and other things we'll pop so, a picture onto the website yeah. cool. really quickly <laughs> we're running out of time yeah so I would just say think about your food think about where your food comes from what you're eating what you need to eat to help you and to help the planet simple thank you have we got enough recycling facilities? Because, I mean, there's been some statistics out recently how that, that while we all merrily collect this stuff, it doesn't actually go anywhere because you, you mentioned China. We're, we're running out of places to actually recycle the plastic anyway, aren't we? So how good we are at collecting it, it's just ending up in a landfill. Well, I think that's a problem at sort of the local authority level when they're collecting domestic recycling as well. Part of the issue is that um, if it's not super sorted and super clean, it's contaminated, nobody wants it, it's not great value stuff. So I think a huge amount of investment is needed in the UK's recycling infrastructure so that there is that outlet for these things, which they're not going to go away. We're not going to suddenly you know, get rid of it. It's, it. 
a wasteless society is is as an ambition, but but in the short term, we absolutely need to sort out the recycling infrastructure in this country, so that we're not shipping our uh, plastic waste off off elsewhere. Um, and and I think we need to make it much clearer um, to consumers what can be recycled where. There's all these different authorities having different collections. Do you put it in a wheelie bin? Do you have to separate this from that? Mm. It's different when you're out in the streets, when you're in the home. Pe- pe- even people with, with who are very concerned, which is obviously a minority, but they're a growing minority, get confused about what can go where. Um, the majority of people spend less than three seconds deciding which bin they're going to drop something into, and that's if they're bothering to use a bin at all. You know, I think we have a huge amount of work to do um, at the government level to drastically simplify the recycling system in the country, you know, for, for individuals at home using their domestic recycling as well as on the street, you know, so that so that we can collect and sort these things, which can have a value if they are recycled and collected properly. Um, so yes, I think there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done, mm. both in terms of, of, of sorting out the, the, the collection systems to make it simple um, and clear for consumers to use, but also so that there is that actual outlet um, and infrastructure there. I just wanted to, if, have you got one very quick top tip that you could share with people who might be struggling with their own mental health? It may be going out and, and you know, or they're struggling at work with pressure. Um, it may be walking on the grass barefoot, but at this time of year in London, that may not be such a good idea. I mean, is there something, that, that, that one very quick thing that you think people could do that's realistic or, or, or a plea to, a, to an organisation? I mean, I would say, you know, uh, from personal experience of shifting from one career to another, if you are struggling, don't try and deal with the whole problem in one go. You know, break it down. Because if you're in a senior position, if you're feeling overfaced, it will be many things in your mind that you're thinking you have to deal with so it'll look like an extra task. Just do as, you know, Philip was saying, go for a walk, Carol, go for a walk, stand on the grass, just try things, just start to adjust slowly the way you perceive the world. Don't try and do it in one go. Have you a plea to organisations and senior managers? Well, I think for organisations, a lot of what we've been talking about is how you create a sense of community that supports people so that, you know, at the simplest level, how much social time do people have? I don't mean going away on team building things because they're one-off intense and the people who win come out feeling good and the people who didn't do so well come home even more demoralised. But actually, how do you build in that? that human factor within the normal day-to-day. You know, we used to do it because we would have tea breaks, we would have lunch breaks. Uh, we would walk around to people's desks and hover. And we see we've lost those things. Mm. And actually, if we could just bring back some of those things, just to remind ourselves that we are, you know, we are social creatures. And that a five-minute conversation when you've just had a terrible phone call from somebody can actually reset you because it's really about just resetting yourself and we've lost a sense of the importance of social contact as a means of resetting yeah i absolutely agree bring back the tea break yeah yeah i think i think that um the easiest thing uh kind of what ben was saying is you know this isn't about a new year's resolution it's about slowly shifting things in your life that that will allow that pressure release and we know we all work in very highly pressurized environments but I think, um, it's interesting, I used to work in Paris a lot, and, and all the Americans in the UK would come back going, I can't believe they stopped. They went out for lunch. <laughs> and then after a while, they'd come back and say, I really miss those lunches. 
But there is, you know, to Carol's point, there's something very, very necessary and very human about that. And I think the easiest thing would be for an organisation is to ban people from having lunch at their desks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just to that. say, you have to have a communal space. And even if it's you just go and sit on your own and stare at the black wall or do something, your brain needs to recharge. Whether whether you're going to learn another language, which means you're using it in a different way, whether it's yoga, whether it is going to find a patch of grass. But taking that time to stop, especially if you're really highly pressurised and starting to panic. I mean, I've been there when the deadline's looming and palpitations and you, you suddenly can't see straight. Actually, that is the moment to walk away, strangely, counterintuitively. It's not the moment to stick your head in your computer because you're already not thinking straight. So stop and just be nice to yourself. I think banning lunch at the desk is fabulous, particularly we take the plastic out as well, wasn't it? Turning up in the canteen with your, or with your with your with your with your bit of plastic, worse still, taking away a plastic container back to the desk. So ban lunch, lunch at the desk. Thank you so much, Ben, Karen, Philippa, for joining me. It's been a terrific and very interesting conversation. They are doing something. So thank you. That that's been a fascinating discussion and. You know, the message I'm taking away is that we need to act both as individuals and as consumers and be more aware, but perhaps also in terms of our advocacy role, you know, as voters, as voters and as, as buyers of, 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 of energy. So it's really a question of saying we need to take action individually. I mean, I don't know, have you got any particular calls to action that you would add to that? Uh, be involved, be engaged, understand where your energies come from and uh, understand the choices that you can make and then do your very best to use as little as possible. Yeah, I mean, my, mine would be, uh, you know, everyone has to take responsibility and it's shared responsibility. And you touched upon this earlier, you know, is it the consumer, is it the the supplier of, of energy, and I'd say, or is it government uh, and other sort of stakeholders in the middle who, who, who facilitate oil, the machine towards uh, a transition? Um, and I think it's about everyone seeing what is ultimately happening and realizing for themselves that they need to take action, irrespective of what government, irrespective of what the market's doing. Suppliers need to take action, individuals need to take action, and, and hopefully, people will see where we're heading and then accelerate that process. Thank you. Fascinating discussion. Thank you both for joining us. Yeah, and maybe maybe there's an issue there too for us as, as individuals, both you know in our work and our, on our non-work lives, whatever that is, of actually keeping on having this subject to the top of people's agenda and ourselves holding the government to account because there's a direct climate change impact from, from, from air pollution, isn't there, and poor air. So it's another one of those things we have to add to that list that, you know, we're holding the government to account for. Yeah. And, you know, obviously Client Earth did a pod short recently mm. on, on, on their role and what they were doing with the government, which explains a lot more of this. In the short term, though, we should all just join the Air We Share campaign that Hubbub are running. And there's a hashtag, Air We Share. Air we share. <laughs> um, and obviously information on the website yeah. and people can get involved and share Absolutely. their stories and get data and information. And we will put a kind of bit of a glossary because some of this stuff is a bit technical. Um, any other calls to action? I mean, my, my, mine is get off the tube, <laughs> get off the main streets, walk, run yeah. and cycle. Yeah. But and cycle off the main roads, that, that would be yeah. my find. And talk about it. Talk, and about, talk about it with it. your friends, talk about it with your children. Read the articles. There's lots in the papers, there's lots on TV, but it's something we're choosing to ignore. But don't. You know when when, we, when the cigarette packets came out with you, actually what, what cigarettes do to, to us? I think there needs to be probably quite a drastic campaign. Yeah. Yeah, and I think 
There is lots. It sounds, I think all of this conversation feels quite, um, it's, it feels a bit scary and it feels a bit unknown and it feels very complicated still. And I think actually we can all breathe easy because there is stuff we can do. There is actions we can all take to improve the aerial share, <laughs> hashtag. Um, and I, th- I think there really is. And whether that's changes you can make to your route or it's chain, or it's even just saying, you know, getting in touch with your MP to say that this is an issue that you care about. We can all get involved in a local group. You know, there's lots of groups for like Mums for Lungs. There's a new parent group called the Air Team that's just launched. So there is ways that people can get involved with with this and taking action on this issue. And I think also the other thing is is for businesses. Um, joining this new coalition of, of leading companies and, and trying some really innovative, creative, practical sort of interventions over the next year is is also is really exciting and we just would invite anyone who is interested in kind of collaborating with us to get in touch. Yeah. And that's a nationwide call, I think, because obviously the air is you know Absolutely. it's an issue for all of us. I love the idea that we might be able to breathe easily though. Perhaps not quite as easily as we thought. <laughs> so, Elle, um, Emily and Andrew, thank you so much for, for joining thank us on Planet Thank you very much. What about people who are in urban spaces or maybe have a very small garden? What, what can we do to, to embrace rewilding and improve the kind of environmental balance? I mean, you were talking earlier about your garden, Simon. What are the sorts of things that people, even with a small plot, could do? Well, I don't think you need to do very much, really. You just need to leave it. And then you say, goodbye, lawn, hello, wildlife. And, and within, you know, within weeks, it suddenly transformed itself. And suddenly the speed of, you know, the, the lawn's disappeared. And now you've got all this tussocky grass. So you hear the, the, the grasshoppers and the crickets. And then you can start looking at the wildflowers that you're getting. Now, I've just done it for a year, so I'm just getting a few species. But when we look at the chalk grassland, as you know, that's very rich biodiversity. We can get up to 40 species per square metre, and I'd love to get up to that in, a, in you know, some years. It'd be amazing. You'll get far more variety than you would in just a normal domestic garden. Much more exciting. But wouldn't you just become overrun with weeds? Well, one's man's weeds is another person's a man's wildflowers. So, you know, it depends how you look at it. You know, so I mean, there's some things um, that you, because of the Weeds Act, that you like ragwort, for example. I had some ragwort, and I took that out because I thought I should, because it could get into the neighbour's property. But apart from things like that, whatever comes in can stay there, subject to um, them being invasive species, and I'll take out an invasive species. And even if you don't want to put your land, your lawn over to to just wildflowers, I know because there's some people who do like a lawn, um, and especially I suppose if you've got kids and they want to play you can still do things in the borders can't you you can plant bee attracting plants and you can plant um more wildflowers and those sorts of um um plants that would attract more species yeah there's there's so much you can do i think there's a few general principles you know don't be too tidy minded allow a little bit of messiness no that messiness can be kind of around the edges i mean a, a, a an area of wildflower meadow with a with a path cut through it is quite nice so at least it looks managed even if you haven't gone too mad uh, the other ideas to think about is look at what your neighbors are doing because often you live in a street and there may be people next door who've got similar ideas um, and you don't have to have everything everywhere you may have a pond and next door's got some shrubs and a bit down the road they've got some trees. So you may na- may think about a nature street as much as a nature garden. Uh, but those principles, you know, don't be too, too, don't be too tidy, don't be too, too worried about it. Plant a range of species, a range of nectar sources. 
and just see what happens. I love the idea of a wildflower street, so that's a kind of call to action for community as well as for individuals. And I think it was um, Alan Titchmarsh who said, don't treat your garden like a sock drawer. Don't keep tidying up. So, so that's the call. So allow rewilding to happen in your plot, even if it's very small. We have fewer than 100 harvests left in the UK before there's no topsoil left in which to grow anything. I mean, that is profoundly shocking, and some people actually say it's more likely to be closer to 50 or 60 harvests left. Yes, I've heard that, yes. So we're facing a real, you know, cliff edge. But what we've seen at NEP in just a matter of 17 years is our soils have restored. We were a biological desert in terms of soil when we started rewilding. But now we have 19 different species of earthworm. We have Charlie, who's a complete insect um, nut, once lay by a, a cow pat and counted 23 different species of dung beetle in one cow pat. Those are bringing down the, 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 the organic matter from the cow pat into the earth. They're, they're keystone species. Mm. We've got one dung beetle that hasn't been seen in Sussex for 50 years the violet door beetle. Don't ask me how it found us, but it's now here in numbers doing that really crucial job of, of bringing the, the organic matter back into the soil. We've got orchids popping up in the middle of our fields and that shows us that our mycorrhizal networks are beginning to spread underground again because orchids depend on mycorrhizal sustenance in order mm. to survive. So all these indicators are that our soil is now returning to good heart. In this really hot summer that we had, in, in days of farming, we'd have cracks in our soil, in our ground, that you could fit your arm in up to your, up to your shoulder. We didn't have any of that yet this year. But you go onto our neighbour's land, still farming, and they had those gigantic cracks everywhere. Mm. We've got soil now that is so full of microbes and all the, the, the fungal systems that it can hold on to water in times of drought. So what you can do, and this is a really exciting um, idea, I think, and this wonderful guy at Natural England came up with the, with the, with the catchphrase, pop-up neps. But what you could do is you could rewild an area, like NEP, for a generation, so say 15 or 20 years, and then return it to agriculture, sustainable agriculture. Once your stores, soils are restored, your water's been um, purified again, you've got some interesting species back, you can then go in with those toppers, those huge machines that you see the Forestry Commission use. They can go in, we've done it with a field outside the project. You can go through acres in just you know, a few hours, return it to a workable tilth, and that can go back into agriculture. So it's really that old-fashioned crop rotation, lying fallow, yeah. putting back the nutrients into Absolutely. the soil that we've Absolutely. completely lost we've sight of. We've completely lost sight of that rotational system. Yeah. And so obviously you would do this in a way that um, an area nearby would be coming, scrubbing up and turning into a rewilding project as, you, as this area was coming out. So that on a rotational system, your turtle doves, your nightingales, your purple emperors always have habitat to go to. Mm. And it is, as you say, it's just like... Um, the old system of um, uh, having a rotational um, arable crops and then every six years or so you would, you would allow that land to lie fallow for a few years, graze it, allow the dung, the urine to go back onto the soil and then you start again. But this would be on a much bigger scale and on a much longer time frame and then you'd get even more biodiversity being able to take advantage of it. Pop up next.
pop what up a notes. wonderful, wonderful <laughs> note to end on. Isabella, thank you so much. I recommend your beautiful book, Wilding, to everyone, available in good bookshops. Please buy it in a bookshop for listeners. It's much more sustainable. We need to support bookshops. Um, thank you for, for giving us an insight. Great, Great to meet project, you. Isn't it? To what I personally really feel is that I can't help thinking that we almost need a messiah-like figure who can somehow, a bit like the, you know, the Pied Piper, um, can um, rise up above and provide a positive, crystal clear vision of where it is we can all go to with this sustainability piece. The sustainability piece has been hijacked by business and it's now about sustainability in business. Um, it is about being sustainable as a business and just going on forever, mm-hmm. which includes being you know, good to the environment. But it's, I, I think we need more people which people can coalesce and support. Um, we need leadership. The second uh, thing, I think, is that business does have a huge role to play because if governments are struggling, which they clearly are, especially the British government at, at, at this particular moment, to do uh, much beyond its immediate um, priority or with Brexit, um, businesses have enormous audiences. Yeah. They call them stakeholders. But they have the names, addresses, texts, emails of these um, stakeholders, some of them are clients or customers or suppliers, uh, local communities, and employees and so on. So they can mobilise them. They can mobilise if, if, they, yeah. if, they, if, if they chose to. And, you know, for those that do, early, early stage, like now, there are enormous uh, gains reputationally uh, uh, to be had because it's a clear, it's a clear field. It's uncluttered by other businesses yeah. doing it. Um, the thing I led, the Arctic Survey, that was sponsored by the Catlin Group, an insurance, uh, you know, a global insurance so company. A, they, a, they got enormous benefits. Absolutely. There aren't many opportunities out there yet. Yeah. The market, if you will, is not sophisticated enough to be generating international projects and events and entities that. So we need brand. leadership. We need mobilisation. Yeah. Oh, but business, business has a huge role to play yeah. because it's a win-win for them. Yeah. The more reputationally good they are, the more support they're going to have from all their stakeholders so it's a no-brainer uh, to see everyone terribly timid at the moment they need to no it's yeah. up to us now politicians can't do the heavy lifting and the, the third thing is we need to somehow create it's not just so much awareness but a more balanced consistent view of what is really happening as far as the scientists are aware so at the moment far too many relatively small groups who are very well funded and resourced and got very clever strategies, have been able to put in almost an equal amount of input into the debate, whether it's in newspapers or radio or TV, and and it just keeps pulling people off off message. It's just unbalancing the whole thing, distorting what's really going on. And I don't blame the public as a general, you know, it's... It's going to be hard enough to, to, to actually get people voluntarily to change their behaviours, extremely hard to do, when there are very good, obvious, immediate things, you know, stop smoking a cigarette, well, I can't, stop eating fatty foods, well, I just feel like them. You know, it's like, wow, it's really hard. But time is running out. Time is running out. Ecosystem. So what I would, So what can people do at a, at, a, at a personal level? There are a few basic things that people will be familiar with, you know, eating less uh, red meat or meat generally for example buying produce that is more locally produced and so on and so on maybe not going on quite so many uh, flights you know what you really ought to be doing to get 
the, the big driver, which is carbon, you know, greenhouse gases, fossil fuel use down. The other thing I would say that's important to remember, if you just switch a sta- standby light off on your uh, TV, um, is that really worth it? Frankly, no, it's not, it's not gonna make the slightest bit of difference. But three important things to remember. The first is, there are lots of other people like you doing it, okay? And the numbers are growing. That does amount to a hill of beans on a daily basis. Secondly, if you tell your family and friends when your children's friends come over and they don't turn the standby off and you give them a ticking off and explain why you're doing it and you are therefore spreading the word, you're amplifying your approach greatly. Uh, and they will tell their friends and so on. So this ripple goes out and you've got millions of people doing this things will happen much quicker than you might imagine. I mean, just look at how social media works and how many people rally around a particular project. You suddenly someone's got £500,000 because they help somebody on, on the street side. It's like, we can do this. Social media can help. And the last thing is, remember, it's not just turning it off, that standby light off for one, just once. It, you're going to do it for the rest of your life. So over your lifetime, yes, that individual flicking off does start from out of of beans. As we always say on Planet Pod, many small changes amount to a great change and we need to do this together. Ben, it's been absolutely fascinating. We could sit here for hours and hours and hours, but you have somewhere to be. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and we will take your words to heart. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.